Hello, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there. Thank you so much for sitting down and joining me for episode 86 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I sat down with Shupiwei Chongwei, a beautiful young lady traveling solo all over the world who just wandered in Higante and pitched a tent out in front of our house on the beach. And I thought it'd be great to have her on the show and get to know her a little bit better and the places she's been and what's motivating her to keep going. So in today's episode, it's really cool because she has Zambian heritage and she talks about Zambia and how it's influenced her and and really shaped her perception of the world. And before we get into that episode, I just want to say a special, special thanks to Jay and Cullen for donating to Misfits and Rejects. You have bought beers for the month for all my guests, and we all appreciate and love you very much for it. So with that said, thank you again, Jay and Cullen, for donating on Patreon, which is a platform that you can also support Misfits and Rejects on uh, by a monthly donation. And if you don't want to donate, that's totally cool. Sharing Misfits and Rejects is very helpful to me. And either way, I'm just really happy to have you for this episode with Shupiwei Changwei. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I am joined by a lovely traveler who's found her way to Gigante after a long journey around Sri Lanka, Nepal, Mexico, and now she's here with us. And I thought it was really cool to bring her on just to give people perspective on how people get around the world, why they do it, where she thinks she's going next, why she's going where she's going next, and just the perspective of a, a traveler who's in search of whatever. I don't know. And haven't had too many females on recently, so I thought it'd be cool to get that perspective as a solo female traveler. So, Shupi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm stoked, and I didn't want to totally annihilate your your full name, so I'm going to let you tell the audience what your full <laughs> name is, because I think it's absolutely beautiful. Can you tell them? Sure. It's Shupiwe Chongwe. Shupiwe Chongwe. Mm-hmm. And that is Zambian descent. Yes. You yeah. have a grandfather who's from Zambia. Mm-hmm. And That's right. And you spent time there. Yeah. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Not a lot. You weren't born there. You were born in Western Australia. But can you talk about that contrasting kind of life that you have got to experience? I mean, growing up in Western Australia, Perth, mm-hmm. but then also knowing you have this heritage in Africa that you've wanted to connect with, I'm assuming, at mm-hmm. some point and really get to know it. But And you've been back. You have dangling Africa earrings in yeah, right now. I do. Um, what's that like? I mean, the contrast and then the feeling of when you are in Zambia and, and what are the people like? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I think the way I was raised was always very Zambian, I think, because we are a very close family. I've got two older sisters and my dad always would speak about Zambia and he speaks the main language there, which is Chinyanjin. And uh, my grandpa was always a really big um, influence when I was growing up. And so when I first got to go to Zambia, I was just so excited about it. And I arrived. And if you ever go there, the thing that hits you, first of all, is the smell. Like, it's so intense. I'd never left the country before. And growing up in Fremantle, Western Australia, it's it's a beautiful place. Like, there's a lot of social issues, but I was really lucky to grow up there. 
and then going to Zambia and seeing how my cousins grow up and we have a whole village, like a family, and just how incredibly lucky I was to grow up where I did. And yeah, just everything's different. The smells, the foods, the people, how how people interact together. It was really beautiful. Like men walking down the streets holding hands. You'd never see that in Perth unless they're a gay couple. It was absolutely beautiful to me. And just how much love there was and how the whole village raises the children. It's not just you have your house and it's so isolated. So um, I really liked that. What's that smell you described? Like, can you describe it to us? What, uh, is, what is it? Wet. Okay. Yeah. Not like and rotting animals like no. from the market. Because sometimes you'll land someplace and the market's nearby the airport. and like you Yeah. Have that. No, sweat. Like, just body odor. Mm. Yeah. And I think every developing country I go to, the smell of the people is always different. So I guess it's really based on what you eat. Um, but yeah, there's just the sweat of a lot of bodies together and poor hygiene, I guess. That's an interesting yeah. observation. I've made one and I want to run it by you since you have been mm-hmm. to quite a few places. I've noticed that the, the vendors who walk around selling their, their wares, their food, whatever, use the same tone all around the world. So you could be in Sri Lanka, you could be in India, you could be in Nepal. Yeah. And whether they're selling coffee or, or whatever, yeah. ice cream, in Nicaragua, it sounds like I'm in Nepal. It's so true. And so, so true. here's my theory that that tone is the only tone in your voice that can last a whole day without completely mm. destroying your, um, your throat or yeah. whatever, your vocal cords. So it's just a theory. Yeah. I, I like know. it. But I like your observation of the different smells based on what they eat. Yeah. And I can't think, I think places that I've been that stand out the most are like the Asian smells. Mm. Not so much the body odor, but I'm not that cute into the body or stuff, but like the smells obviously of the food and whatnot. What is a typical kind of dish in Zambia? It's nshima, which is their staple. So it's like ground maize and then water and they cook it in a big pot and then they have this huge stick and the women will just like turn it and work it with their hands and make it really smooth. And I don't have the knack of it. Um, it's incredible. It just, it comes out so good. A lot of people don't like it. A lot of Westerners don't like it, but growing up, we were always so excited. We used to say to my dad, like, let's make Nishima. And so that's probably a Zambian word for it, right? Yeah. Because they I have it in, in South, South Africa. Africa. It's like pap. Yeah. Mealy pop or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Or like mealy meal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, and then beans, or if you can afford it, meat, you have like a meat stew. Like it's not very exciting. It's not like, in Tanzania, where they have the influence of like the Indian spice trade, it's pretty boring and bland. And as a vegetarian, like, going there, people just don't understand it. They're like, if you have meat, why wouldn't you eat it? Surely you'd want to eat meat over anything. And so they just absolutely thought I was crazy. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's not very exciting food. They don't experiment a lot. Um, also very carb-based so they just buy bread because it's cheap from the shop if you're living in, in a city. They buy white bread and then make like bread pudding with like condensed milk or milk and sugar. Hmm. Yeah. So it's not the healthiest. It's landlocked. Is that yes. correct? Yeah. So there is no coast. No. A lot of lakes, a lot of rivers. Yeah. There's rivers, there's lakes, um, but there's crocodiles in them, unfortunately. Is it, do they have tourism there? Do tourists go yeah. for anything specific? Yeah, Victoria Falls, which is okay. on the border of Zimbabwe and Zambia, which is magnificent. It's probably the most incredible place I've ever been. 
It's so beautiful. It's called Mosiotunya, which is, I think, the smoke that thunders. And it's, it's exactly that. And there's a bungee jump on the bridge between Zim and Zambia, um, which is pretty scary. I didn't do that one. I think it's the biggest in the world, isn't it? No, that's the one in South Africa. I okay. did do that one. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, that one wasn't as scary as the no, other well, one. No, well, I just think my boyfriend at the time, when I was there last, he did the one in Zambia. And just watching how they did it, didn't look that safe <laughs> and I was kind of like if I'm going to bungee jump in my life I want to do the biggest one and I absolutely loved it I wanted to do it again <laughs> I just didn't have enough money fair enough John and I dro- drove down to Costa Rica in 2000 mm-hmm. and we were going through Costa Rica and there was this janky sign on the side of the road that said bungee jumping like take a right and John's like here we go and I was just like whoa like really like that's <laughs> like a pretty decision we should make together you know yeah. and he's like no we're doing it. I was like okay super ghetto doesn't look safe at all. Um, everyone goes, I'm the last one to do it. And like, I'm standing on the edge and I'm, everyone's like counting down three, two, one. I go to do it and the guy grabs my safety harness. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he hadn't hooked me from the like no. the thing. So if I had jumped, I wouldn't have gone that far. I would have smashed myself into the bridge underneath side. I had like a six foot little like line on me. Wow. Which did make the jump any easier after that, just thinking about how unprofessional this all was. Oh my gosh, I'm so impressed that you went ahead and did it still. I would have felt so discouraged with myself if I hadn't, since everyone else had already done it, you know? Mm. But um, that's cool. So you described, though, like village life. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like your your grandfather didn't grow up in in the main capital. No, he grew up in Chapada, which is, or just outside of there, um, which is a small town. Like how far outside? Oh, it's, ah, oh, gosh, I can't even remember. Like, because the roads are so bad and we're always there in wet season. I don't know, kilometer wise, but an hour okay. outside of Chapata. Um, and yeah, so super remote. And he's the headman of the village. So in the villages, you've got, um, headman for each village. And then overall, you've got a chief, but the previous chief died quite young and left his son to be the next chief. Um, when he was like a teenager, he's pretty similar age to me. And so my grandpa was kind of the advisor for him. Um, so he always, um, had kind of a good life in the village as far as village life goes, but it's basic. Like we go there every time and like kids are very sick. Like the rates of HIV are super high and of malaria. So getting to a clinic is really difficult and it's expensive. It may cost like $2, but for them, they trade things. They don't have money at their disposal. So, yeah, it's super basic. And my dad was sent there every school holidays, was sent to go to the village to stay with his grandparents. And so I think... From what, the capital? Yeah, from... Yeah, so my grandpa moved to the capital um, after studying at the University of Western Australia. And, um, yeah, so my grandpa grew up between there and then the village, which he absolutely loved. Yeah. I think he really missed it because he was sent to boarding school mm-hmm. in Australia when he was around 10, I think. This is your grandpa or not your dad? This is my dad. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So your dad was sent to boarding school in Australia and mm-hmm. your grandparents stayed? Yeah. Okay. And yeah. then you were born in Australia? Yeah. So he met my mom there and then I was born. Okay. Um, when you do go back and visit, I mean, what kind of living accommodations are they in now? I mean, they're obviously because he's the what, head of the village, like mm-hmm. it's probably nicer than the rest of the population or is it the same? No, it is nicer. Um, like the main house or main hut is theirs and they don't live there all the time. They're there 
every few months they'll go or sometimes they'll spend a couple of months there. Um, but yeah, it's nice. And they got solar panels since I was first there. So, so like they've fully got furnished, like tile floors? Or no, like- I don't know. Like earth floors um, and then like thatched roof, um, some solar panels and like no shower, use a bucket to shower. Um, we've got beds, we've got some beds, um, but then everyone else is like very basic. But there's no big difference. It's not like, oh, wow, look at this huge house compared to all these tiny huts. Like it's, it's very similar. And every time we're there, there's always a line of people because my grandpa has to deal with so many different issues which go on. And it's a small village and you think like simple village life, but still there's like the dynamic between, between villagers and it's really interesting. And so he has to deal with all of that. Meaning what? Like they bring like a grievance, for example, yeah. like so-and-so fucking stole my pig or yeah, whatever. Yeah, this person like beat his wife. What are we going to do about it? Or like this person's getting drunk all the time. Or um, a young man coming and saying like, I'm hearing voices, you know, I'm, I think I'm possessed and he's got mental health issues and um, or asking for money is a big one. But it's, it's crazy because we'll be sitting um, like on the, the veranda kind of and then women will come up who'll be like my aunties or great aunts and they'll be older and me and my sister will like, get chairs for them or we'll want them to use our chairs and they'll just be so content sitting on the floor and they'll just refuse to sit on chairs. And so, it's, so that was a big shock when I, when I first went there. I just didn't really know how to react to that. But yeah, they're always so excited when, when we go. But it's, I mean, how it's are you really received? Sad. Like, I mean, I know oh, that your grandfather super. is an established member of society, yeah. there, but like still you're blonde haired, you're blue eyed, like mm-hmm. you probably stand out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, when I first went there, there were kids who were like three years old who'd never seen a white person. And they screamed and their moms thought it was so funny and they'd like try and get us to hold them and push them upon us. And they were screaming like they'd seen a ghost, like an infuiti, which is like a ghost, like, you know, an evil spirit. And, um, yeah, it, I was just so shocked by it. And I remember I had a patch on my pants, which was Mickey Mouse. And all the kids were like, what is this? And for me, every other kid would know, like in my mind, everyone knows what Mickey Mouse is, like international symbol. But they had no idea. And um, what I, do they know? Like Western-wise, Coca-Cola? No, no, I don't think so, because it is super remote. Like they don't, they don't get people. So they don't. They don't have no. like, for example, here in Higante, all the locals eat Coca-Cola no. and little bags of chips. So they don't mm-hmm. have that. In- no, no, no. This is this is super remote. So they, they're yeah. still like getting their food from farm yeah. farming yeah um, so they've meat got... if they can afford to kill it or yeah. find it or uh-huh. barter for it mm-hmm. and they're bartering like you said um beans and corn mostly. yeah beans corn mangoes tomatoes yeah yeah it's very basic life and the landscape is like thick jungle or is it like rolling yeah. grass hills or it's quite high elevation and it's there's hills but it's not like mountainous at all. And it would have been thick vegetation, but not jungly. Um, have they completely cut down all the, the wood for to sell? Like, are they destroying? A lot. Well, a lot of land has been cleared for farming. Mm. Mm, everyone has their own plot of land. And even in the cities, people have their own plots of land where they grow things. They make a garden out of, out of anything. 
Yeah. And now you're a nurse, so mm-hmm. you have the capability to probably go and, and be the individual in the village who yeah. helps these people with injections or mm-hmm. administering whatever. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah. So that was the reason I actually started nursing. So I remember talking to my grandpa on one of these trips to Zambia, and he I always wanted to be a vet growing up because I love animals and I like looking after things. And then I kind of moved away from that. But I'd never thought about nursing or medicine. And then I was speaking to my grandpa and he told me about Medicine Sans Frontiere. And I was just so amazed by the organization and what he said about it. And he's got friends who work for um, MSF and I just wanted to do something similar. I thought it was so amazing that you could travel and help people at mm-hmm. the same time. And um, yeah, I wanted to be a doctor at the start. I think this is when I was like, maybe. 14 so I wanted to be a doctor and then kind of going through high school I was like I don't want to I don't want to have to get the grades and like do six years of study straight when I've been studying at high school so I thought I'd do nursing and then I'd go on and do medicine but then from becoming a nurse I don't want to be a doctor because you have less patient interaction and you can have the same knowledge as a nurse and um, so yeah that's my plan is definitely to go back and work there the language is quite easy to pick up, and so I want to I want to go and learn, and then maybe do some lecturing at the university in Lasaka and lecturing what health? Yeah, yeah. How to prevent HIV and stuff like that? Yeah, def- I'd love to do community health, like preventative stuff, because prevention's definitely the best way. Um, so yeah, I think that's definitely on the cards at some point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you've been on the road now how many months? How many years? Um, almost a year. Almost a year. Yeah. And your first, you left Australia, is kind of like your first big trip out after yeah. nursing school. You were working up in the north um, mm-hmm. on the west coast in a pretty rural area as a nurse. Yeah. And then you did you finish a contract or you just say, I'm done with this, I want to go travel? So I was working in two towns. The first town um, was really rough. And so I moved away from from my hometown, which is beautiful, and I've, it's a bit of a bubble. Like everyone says Fremantle is like, everyone's open-minded and it's, it's a bubble. And I kind of, my life was so good there. I kind of wanted to be a little bit harder and I'm really interested in indigenous health. And so I moved up north um, and was pretty shocked when I got up there because no one really talks about what it's like in those areas. Like they talk in the media about um, the differences between indigenous, like the disparities between indigenous and non-indigenous health, but and like the social issues out there, like a lot of alcoholism, um, meth addiction, like, is pretty rough. But then going up there and just seeing like, the lack of opportunities and just the cycle that people get into um, of drugs, of like poor eating, bad health. Um, it was just really shocking, really, really shocking. So I remember calling my mom being like, I just don't know what to do. Like, I have no idea how to fix this problem. And it is such a big problem that a lot of people don't know about it. Um, I think traveling as well. A lot of people just don't really know about what happened in Australia with colonization and the effects now and the racism. Like it was a really racist town. Even the nurses I worked with were, yeah, didn't treat the patients well, I didn't think. Um, so I was there for four months and then I moved to another town, which is a bit more, a bit more touristy. Um, and there's more backpackers and just more things to do. 
and I liked it better because I was working in emergency. It was more fast-paced. The nurses and the doctors were definitely just a lot better at their jobs, and they weren't as burnt out. But it's so easy when you're looking after the same people every day. They see the same issues, and then the same people come back in, even though you've invested so much time and so much energy into them, and they just represent with the same issue. And then down the track, they die because they're not doing anything about their health. Yeah, in America, some, failing them. some hospitals call those frequent flyers. Yeah, yeah, where definitely. They, just, they come in. They're, a lot of them are homeless. They just come in because they just want someone to talk to. Mm. Or like, they're not mm. obviously interested in changing. Or some of them no. are, but not a lot of them are. Yeah, that's what I kind of had to realize. Like, it's not only what we're putting into the patient. It's it's them. If they they don't care about it, or if they don't take the initiative to help themselves, then they're not going to get better. And it's just so different But because for me, I'm like, if I had an infected wound on my foot, it would be a big deal for me, you know? But for them, it's like, it's nothing. Hmm. It doesn't, they don't even really think about it, which is so sad and really hard to relate to. Yeah. Did um, you kind of play out your time there as a nurse and come to the conclusion that you want to kind of save some money and travel or was it mm. some event that made you just say, I'm done. I'm, I'm leaving. I don't want to do this. anymore. Uh, so I was in the second town in Broome and I just like different things kept happening. Like it wasn't like staffing wise. It was just a bit frustrating and I was just a bit burnt out, I think. And, um, I really wanted to continue with emergency and pediatrics. And I said to them like, this is meant to be a graduate program, which means that you're working as like a level 1.1 nurse, but you're meant to be supported by a staff development nurse. You're meant to have extra training. And there just wasn't that at all. And it was hard because when I first started, there were, there'd been a lot of budget cuts. And so there was a lot of new nurses that they'd just pulled in from other areas. And then the nurses that had been there long-term got sent out to the smaller communities. And so it was just a bit of a mess really. Um, but one night it was a big grand final, football grand final between two small communities, Bridgetanga and Luma. And it was going to be a really big night. Like everyone knew they'd send in extra cops from Perth. And, um, at three in the morning, it was super lucky. My, I lived alone in a really rough area, which was another stupid thing, putting like a young nurse alone in a rough as guts area of the town. And so I was there alone, but my boyfriend at the time had come up to visit me and I just wake up to the house shaking at 3am and like we jumped out of bed and he ran out and there were two men in the house and they bashed down my front door and had like come into the house and he managed to scare them off. Um, but like they grabbed my bag and just bolted, but that ju it just shook me so much because I was thinking like, what would have happened if I was there alone? And just that and a mixture of other things. And I was kind of just like, I don't want to do this right now. And so I told them and I was like, I want to do more pediatrics. And I stayed on for an extra couple months. And then I moved back home for summer. And then I got another nursing job in another country town, um, which was not as rough um, and a bit more boring. And so I worked there, saved up some money there as well. And just did lots of night shifts, lots of like afternoons into nights, like extra shifts. And then I went up north further with my friends, went on a road trip, and then I went to Sri Lanka. 
How much did you save? Like, how much did you have in your pocket when you left? Because I know you didn't have mm. intentions of traveling for a long time. Yeah. It was kind of just like, a, I'll go for a, a month to Sri yeah. Lanka and then come back. But how much did you have, roughly? About 12 grand, 13 maybe. Oh, nice. I had a fair amount. Yeah. I'm good at saving. Like, I don't need to spend much at all. I so. noticed. I mean, that's how we met is you pitched a tent in front <laughs> <Yeah>. of the house. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So now you're on the road. You're in Sri mm -hmm. Lanka. And I think you mentioned you got a job there. Yeah. So um, I was just traveling around and wanted to surf. And so the best time, the best place for the time was in Aragon Bay on the East Coast. And so I was there and just became friends with these guys. And um, they owned a, a cafe and bar. And it was just the place that all the surfers would go to hang out in the morning, like after or before their surf and then at night. They'd have a happy hour and everyone, all the young travelers would go there and like, and the locals that I'd see surfing. And it was, it was just a really beautiful place, really nice. And then they offered me a job and we just were like a family. It was really good. Um, and so I stayed there until the season ended um, and the bar closed. And then I went to the south and I'd met some surf coaches and they let me stay at their place. And we just hung out and surfed and cooked and chilled together. It was beautiful. It was a really, really good time. That's really cool. And yeah. then, so then what spawned just like, I'm not going home. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I initially, I was going to go home after maybe a month. Mm -hmm. I had a boyfriend at the time and I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to Sri Lanka and I needed a, I needed an exit flight because it's an island and they have to show proof that you're going to leave. And so I had a flight to Kuala Lumpur a month later. And then I changed it and delayed it a month and a bit and was kind of just like, I'm not going to come back yet. And then again, I actually still had my job at, um, in the country town in Geraldton. And I kept calling them being like, I'll come back in a month. Like I'll, I'll come back in another month. And I was a casual and eventually I just called them and I was like, I'm not coming back. <laughs> I'm sorry. And my boss was awesome. She was really cool about it. She was just like, oh, I wish I could do what you're doing, like enjoy it, have the best time. Um, and yeah, then I was just kind of like sitting with my friends one day and I'd always wanted to go to Nepal. People always told me you should go there, like you'll love it. And I was kind of just like, yeah, why not? I'll just go there. And so changed my flight and went to Nepal like solo. a week and a half later, solo, yeah. Landed in Kathmandu by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. How was that? Uh, it was a big shock just because I was used to like open spaces, like the beaches of Sri Lanka are beautiful, fresh air, palm trees. And then I arrived in Kathmandu, which is a hectic city. And it's just so dusty and so polluted. And I was in the taxi going to like the heart of the city or to like the touristy kind of area at Tamil. And I remember just being like, choking on the air because it was so horrible and so it was a shock but I really liked it because it was way more of a cultural experience than Sri Lanka had been and it was a lot harder and harder the, or hotter harder okay <laughs> yeah just a lot more difficult to travel a lot more people um but it was beautiful I don't like cities and I think that's the first city that I fell in love with the colors are incredible just everywhere you look it's just like rainbow colors there's something so interesting about what you just said where 
it being a hard place to travel is so much more intoxicating and enchanting、mm. and interesting to you. Like, I kind of compare it to those who like ultra marathons. You know,、yeah. just the suffering, like、mm-hmm. the physical suffering, the mental suffering. I mean, I think ultras may be a little bit more extreme than traveling in some of these places that we travel. But like sometimes, like the stress of that new situation that you've never encountered before, you don't speak the language,、mm-hmm. and there's you know fifty Nepalese men around you, like trying to get you in their taxi,、yeah. is intense.、Mm-hmm. And somehow it's addictive though too. Yeah, and you start to seek、it's、it、thrilling. out. You want to go to the next hardcore place. Yeah. And interestingly though, you came from Zambia, which I. Can imagine when you land, you know, you talked about the smell, but like it's kind、yeah. of be similar, right? You walk out the airport there, is it? Yeah, but because they no, not so much actually, because there isn't that big tourist scene, so so they don't even know what to do with you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. There's it's quite a small airport for Lusaka, and there's just not really people there trying to sell you stuff. Yeah, it's different because it's tourism hasn't hit there. So, what have you been finding then as like a common theme within yourself as you as you navigate these places you you've been going? So, you started in Sri Lanka, Nepal,、mm-hmm. Mexico, and you're and you're doing it solo. Obviously, you're sociable and people like hanging out with you, so that you get jobs and you、mm-hmm. meet people. But like, what have you learned about yourself up until now? Oh, a lot, a lot. I don't know. That's a big question.、Um, I always thought when I was younger that I was. A person that needed other people around me, and I think traveling—that's changed a lot. I've become like, way more into hanging out alone, and I love hanging out with people too. And I love hearing people's stories and socializing. But it just comes to a time, and I'm like, I need to be alone. And sometimes when I've been tra- traveling with people, like you meet people along the way, and it becomes a bit too much, and. It's like I'm just gonna go indulge in my own company. Sometimes it's like, ah,、oh, it just feels like you know, such a a treat to go and just hang out on your own. And I didn't have that before. And I met, I actually met a guy in Madeiras,、um, and I was talking to him about it, and he said something which I thought was really corny, but also really sweet, which was like, this is you like falling in love with yourself, which is the most important thing you can do, and travel makes you do that. And I thought about it, and I was like, "That's actually so true. No matter how corny it sounds, it's actually really true." Yeah, it's interesting because I've had the opposite sort of epiphany within myself.、Okay. Where I always imagined myself being that like solo, mysterious traveler around、mm-hmm. the world, like not needing anybody. And then my first trip by myself, it's like just like the air, just the vacuum effect happening within me, and I'm like, <gasps> "I need social stimulation.、Mm. Like I don't like not having people around me." Yeah, and. I need. We've had conversations about this. I need like a solid eight hours a day by myself. But I need to also be able to have access, like we do down the beach at John's Bar, to like pop out whenever I want and、yeah. have a conversation daily. Like、mm-hmm. I need that.、Um, so it's interesting to see what every, everyone kind of discovers about themselves、mm. as they continue to move. And you'll obviously discover a lot more. And sometimes I think about the trips that I've taken, you know, with John and、uh, episode twenty-seven, <laughs> who.、Uh, We've had so many experiences that were so intense that it's taken like ten years for me to actually like internalize、mm-hmm. how it really affected me and and left an impression on me that I still I utilize on a daily but didn't know how much I utilized it.、Mm. Like for me, like the bartering thing, like we spent a year just like with the most intense budget, so we bartered for everything so hardcore, and just became such a a way in which I.、Uh, 
I get through like a daily in certain situations and it's so automatic and it was so uncomfortable at times and and I felt bad about trying to get mm. something cheaper and now I just is part of the daily you know yeah and it's a powerful tool to have mm -hmm. in every and every type of society whether it's Western whether you're in Europe Australia or in your in India yeah definitely it's crazy how quickly you adapt to places mm -hmm. like every place I go especially when I first started traveling like when I was in Sri Lanka I remember like seeing people and they were just like it was so easy to to like barter for something or just like little things had become so easy for them and I was just so jealous it's like oh, I, I love that like you're in you're so out of your own comfort zone but quickly you've made yourself at home there and I love seeing people do that and I love being able to do that myself. It's a really special thing. And then sometimes I have like these, these kind of thoughts and I look around and I'm like, wow, like I didn't expect that I'd be able to do that. Or like, here I am. Like I'm that person who I saw on the first day. Have you had any like insecurities pop up that you didn't know you had? Um, I, I don't know about insecurities, but I think, it's been hard traveling in Central America as a woman, like a young woman. More so than over in Sri Lanka or Nepal? Mm, it was hard there in some ways too. Nepal, not so much. Nepal, I found that people were super respectful um, most of the time. Sri Lanka, uh, not so much. There were certain areas where it was like I just wouldn't, wouldn't walk there because men were very creepy and there were situations where I'd been like watched and had men like touching themselves and mm -hmm. and watching and it's it's a big contrast because there's the surf culture in these places and there's women who will like walk down the street in bikinis which I never did and then the neighboring town is like a very Muslim town very conservative and it's kind of like western culture has just gone there and imposed on the town and then just being like, oh, you know, fuck you, I'm going to do whatever I want and not be respectful of it. So that was kind of disappointing. But in Mexico, I found like the machoism of people and just their confidence of the men, like in the street, like they'll, they don't give a shit. They don't care if they're making you uncomfortable. And it, I've just felt a lot more intimidated. And I think surfing as well, it's really frustrating because it's so, it's so male dominated. And then when you combine that with like the macho culture, it's just too much. I found. Has it caught, like, has it changed from um, country to country? Like, can you say one, I don't want to call anybody out like mm. country wise or culture wise, <laughs> yeah. but like you can just say, generally speaking, you found that certain countries have been more like yeah. machismo towards you than other Central American countries. Yeah. The machismo was definitely stronger in Mexico. I okay. Found. Um, and then, but then the cat calling, um, there were some places like when I was in Guatemala in some towns, I just didn't want to walk down the street on my own because I just got so sick of it. I haven't had it that much lately, but thinking back now, I was just so angry. I was just so sick that I couldn't walk down the street and just think my own thoughts and not be hassled. It was just constant. And then I'd walk down the street with a male and nothing. Yeah, it's a perspective I think yeah. many men will never understand fully. Yeah. Um, however, Nicaragua is a place where women are very confident. 
Mm. It's always been rumored that women are comfortable having, you know, something on the side relationship wise. Okay. Um, the women in Nicaragua are very much empowered in a way that isn't as obvious to the naked eye. Mm -hmm. You have to kind of be here for a while and start to understand how the culture works. But yeah. this is something that I've experienced where I'll be in Rebus and I'll get catcalled. <laughs> oh yeah. By the, the women of Rebus. And it's been really interesting over the years to, um, see the difference when you do when i do travel around the world i go to different parts of central america costa rica guatemala and i will say it's very specific to here mm -hmm. where it's that sort of like machisma if you will like mm. like hey sexy what's up like really? nice ass you know and you're what? like oh, how could you <laughs> but oh my god it's probably the only place in the world i've ever experienced it and and you, you talk to the locals they're like oh yeah for sure you know, wow. like older women are very confident, even younger. And the older women sometimes will have a younger man on the side. Yeah. And how does it make you feel when you're catcalled? I just kind of giggle. Like yeah. I'm caught off guard. Yeah. I'm never offended. I'm just caught off guard because <laughs> I've never had that happen before. Yeah. Um. So, but yeah, I think a per it's a perspective. Just going back to what I'm saying like most men will never have mm. and be able to really relate to and try to walk in a woman's shoes and really understand what it's like to be just fucking all the time, dude. Mm walking on the street and like yeah. your own, you don't even have your own thoughts because that's all you're getting is bombarding mm. by that stimuli. Yeah. So are you thinking about continuing South, like going to South America or? I think I want to go back to Mexico. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> cool. Um, so yeah. the machismo all thing that being didn't really. Said, <laughs> um, oh, I just absolutely loved it. Like I think the surf was just so good there. I really miss it. And I spent, most of my time there camping on the beach, it was really cheap. It was like you buy one meal at a little palapa and, and then they let you camp there and it's like right in front of the surf break and there's other people who are doing the similar, similar things and it's just very basic and I really like that way of living. Yeah. How's so, the camping been for you? I mean, is that kind of your, can you just give us an idea of like how you approach it as a single female camping in these, yeah. as you just described, very macho aggressive cultures? <laughs> I mean, because for a lot of, I think, listeners, that could be setting yourself up for a disaster, mm, you know? Mm -hmm. So maybe just take us through, like, how you think about it, how you approach it, and what your strategy is. Okay. So, gosh, I don't really have that much of a strategy, but it's kind of like I camp in areas that I think are safe, that there's people around, like, at a restaurant where the family lives, um, lives there. So they're running it out of their home. Or that there's other people around. So there's other people doing similar things, like people in vans and stuff. I've never been somewhere I've been completely alone camping, I don't think. Not here in Australia, definitely, but not not on this trip. And so I haven't felt that uncomfortable. Um, and, yeah, no, it's, I've I've been smart about it, I think. And I've got a lock on my tent. I know that doesn't really, it's not really going to do much. I mean, water gets into my tent. <laughs> so anyone can get in for sure. But I just, yeah, I'm careful about where I camp and who's around. And, and yeah, I have a knife that I carry with me. Um, but, yeah, protection-wise, it's not really the best. I don't think my parents would be too happy about it. But I love it. Like you, I just think, I, for me, I have to do stuff like that. It makes me so happy. It's but it's not, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're using your intuition, your head. Yeah. 
you're not doing anything out of the ordinary per se. Mm -hmm. There's other people around you doing it. You're not yeah. wandering out into some rural village where there isn't anybody mm -hmm. just pitching a tent on yeah. like a secluded part of the beach and thinking you're going to be safe. Mm. And I think that's something that a lot of people um, who do what you do do carry into those situations, and that's why they are able to do it. Mm. Um, like Lexi, I forget her last name, but she was on the show uh, a few episodes back talking about hitchhiking all over Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And um, she had the same kind of routine and approach. You know, somebody would pull up, she'd take a photo of them, send it to her father. This is who I'm getting in the car with. We're leaving here. Like, we'll get to this mm -hmm. spot, to, you know, in the next few hours. Yeah. And so it was a very systematic approach and obviously used her intuition to where if she felt it was not safe, she just mm -hmm. said, goodbye, you know, I'm not getting in. Yeah, um, you definitely have to... You've yeah. got to have your wits about you. Yeah. Yeah. But not so much that you're paranoid. I mean, you don't seem paranoid. You don't seem, you seem very relaxed. You just, yeah. like you said, you walk out to a place and if it's right, it's right. If it's not, I'm sure you would pay for a place to mm. crash for the night, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No, you just got to, you just figure it out. I guess traveling, you just kind of figure out that you've got to trust your gut. And I think my gut is usually really, really spot on. And I never want to put myself in a situation where I'm going to be vulnerable or compromised. So, yeah, I also will surround myself with, like, I'll get to know the people I'm staying with or, like, the owners of the restaurant that I'm camping near. And, um, yeah, be confident as well. And actually I have some, like, I have boots which could look like a man's boots and I've got, like, a, a guy's top. And I'll sometimes I, like, hang them out so it looks like there's a guy also in the tent so it doesn't, look like I'm just a woman camping alone. Nice little hack, mm. little camping hack mm -hmm. for all you, you single ladies out there who <laughs> want to adventure in Central America. Well, that's cool. Um, so how much money do you have left? I mean, are you are you still comfortable to keep going for quite a few more months? Or I've got about six grand left. You've only spent half in a year. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. But for me, like, I'm, because I started with that amount, I'm getting nervous because I don't want to go home just yet um, and I want to keep traveling and just the thought that I'm going to have to at some point decide what to do or like figure out where I'm going to make more money and not just kind of go along with it and see what happens is a bit daunting but I can definitely stretch it. I can make it last oh heck yeah that's a yeah. fortune yeah. to have yeah. And you've covered a lot of ground. I mean, that's really impressive, I think. Mm. It's relative, obviously. There's some people out there that say that that's way, that's way too much money. You have so much money to travel with that. Like, mm -hmm. um, others would say, like, oh my God, she's doing it on such little money. So mm. it's very relative, but I feel like the amount of distance you've gone, it's incredible. That's yeah. great. You know, it's a year on six grand. Mm -hmm. Like, that's amazing. And you, you could definitely keep going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm going to. I want to. That's great. If you had, uh, try to inspire one listener out there with just a closing thought, a closing statement, a closing poem. I know you like to write. <laughs> Is there anything you want to maybe close with? Um, well, just that I think solo travel is the most incredible gift you can ever give to yourself. And if you've got doubts about it, just push them aside. Just start what you're doing, no matter how old you are and just go because you'll definitely become a better person. And the things you'll experience will be, so magical and you'll be the person that got you there it's something that you can do alone and it's so it's just so exciting and it's the most beautiful experience thank you thank you Shubi. it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you Jason. 
Thank you again for joining me for another episode of Misfits and Rejects. It's a pleasure trying to deliver inspirational content to you. I hope it is inspiring you to maybe take that next step towards the dreams that you've always had for yourself. Shupi Wei is a very cool lady doing some very cool things and definitely inspires me in just how she goes through life. Remember, you can donate to Misfits and Rejects on Patreon.com, which is a platform for fans to support content creators like myself it's patreon patreon.com backslash misfits and rejects any donation helps if you don't want to donate sharing misfits and rejects with friends is also tremendously helpful either way it's all good i'm happy to do it and i think you all are so very beautiful ciao thank you for listening to misfits and rejects i hope this inspire you to think about your life situation where you're at and possibly make a big decision to Choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new. To live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.